We are continuing in our series. We'll be in John uh, chapter 4, verse 43. And uh, if you've been with us the last few months, uh, you know that we've been in this first half of the book of John, and the first half, or really um, chapters 2 through 12, are known as the book of signs. So if you think back over the last couple weeks, you might remember Jesus' first sign uh, to the Jewish nation is turning water into wine at a wedding. Uh, His second sign is arguably the clearing of the temple in Jerusalem, though scholars debate whether that's truly a sign or not. Uh, But more clearly, this week we get the next sign that Jesus performs. And as we study these chapters and work our way up to uh, chapter 12, you'll see that Jesus is going to perform sort of an escalating series of signs, revealing that he is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. Uh, But in the process, he's going to sort of anger and disturb the the Jewish leadership more and more as he goes. Uh, So we'll pick up this morning in uh, John 4, uh, verse 43. It says this. It says, after the two days, that was in Samaria, uh, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. There was a certain royal officer whose son lay sick at Capernaum, which is about 20 miles away. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived from Galilee, from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. But the royal officer said, Sir, come down before my son dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live live. So he and his whole household believed. That was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning heavy-hearted, appropriately heavy-hearted, but also full of hope. And right there in the midst of sadness and heaviness, Uh, that comes from the Spirit. There's also a joy that comes from the Spirit. And we just see, Lord, when we open the Gospels, how you walked through dark places and heavy things. Cultures at war with each other, people dying, and and you were there as the embodiment of love. And you you walked around, and this is is real stuff that happened. Uh, and, And so as we study... Uh, what you did and said 2,000 years ago, God, I pray that it would come um, just roaring right into the present as we recognize that your presence is here, that your Holy Spirit is here, that it's the same Jesus, that it's the same broken world, and that, that you come, among other things, to touch 
and revive and heal. So we say, come Holy Spirit. Jesus, would you walk among us now? Would you open our eyes as to who you are and what you want to do in the midst of our war-torn world? We need you. We love you. Be glorified here. In Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus performs another sign for the Jewish nation, uh, much of the significance of what he is doing is in the details. Uh, first, we're told that this sign was performed in Cana in Galilee, which means that Jesus started in Cana, where he turned water into wine. He went up to Jerusalem for one of the festivals, and now he's making his way back down again and to the north uh, toward Cana. But his movement from Jerusalem to Cana is significant. Remember that Jerusalem is the center of the universe for Judaism, and the temple is there, which is sort of uh, the center of the center. And so Jesus actually starts there, uh, but his uh, movement then goes outward from there. So he starts in Jerusalem where he has this long conversation with Nicodemus uh, near the temple. And then he moves further out to Judea and Samaria where he talks to a woman, a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And now he's even further out in Cana of Galilee talking to a Roman centurion. And uh, through our cultural lens, this may sort of feel like a random uh, sort of scattering of stories. Jesus is just in different random places that we don't really know. And he's talking to a variety of people, uh, the variety of which maybe we don't fully grasp. But uh, John is actually very rhythmic and intentional in the way he's captured these stories. This is not as random as we would suppose. And in fact, what we see, do, what we see Jesus doing through this series is witnessing about the Messiah and the kingdom in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Galilee, which is sort of a symbolic of the ends of the earth. There's this movement that Jesus will later ask his disciples to repeat from the Jews to the Samaritans and ultimately to the Gentiles. Jesus starts with Nicodemus, a Jewish man near the temple, and then he moves out to the Samaritans who are ethnically half Jewish and they're but clearly outsiders. And then he moves from there even further out and is now interacting with Gentiles uh, on sort of the edge of their nation. And so this place where the story takes place today is sort of the outer courts of society. It's thought to be full of darkness and depravity. And so he's moving from the Jewish leadership who claims to know and love God, uh, to the Samaritans who kind of worship God, but are admittedly confused as to the details. And now he's out with the Gentiles uh, who, uh, by definition, want nothing to do with God. So he, he's, he's going through those movements. But what's remarkable in the gospel stories is that the further out Jesus goes, the better response he receives. 
If anyone should have recognized Jesus and responded to him, it was the leaders of the Jewish nation. They know the scriptures inside and out. They claim to love God. They are actively waiting for the Messiah. Instead, Nicodemus walks away confused. Then you get the Samaritan woman in Judea who is thought to be sort of culturally and ethnically second class and inferior to the Jews. And yet she responds brilliantly, effectively becoming the first missionary, and she goes out and it says because of her witnessing and testimony, her entire village comes to faith in Jesus and then comes to Jesus uh, to meet him in the flesh, which is just a, sort of a crazy counterintuitive thing that you wouldn't expect to see in the story. But then Jesus moves even further out to the land of the Gentiles, and he's talking to a Roman centurion. This is the very hand of the oppressor. Foreigners who have invaded their land and suppressed them. He is 0% Jewish. He's by definition sort of anti-Jewish. At least some of the Samaritans were waiting for their Messiah. The Romans are not. In fact, the Romans have such a different lens, they have such a different worldview, that they have no paradigm for a creator God or a Messiah. They're in a totally different world. They're in complete spiritual darkness. And yet, this man demonstrates remarkable faith. First off, uh, the Roman centurion is coming from Capernaum, which is about 20 miles north of where Jesus is. And as you go north, the elevation goes down. So in order for this uh, Roman official to come and meet with him, he has to hike 20 miles uphill just to get to the town where Jesus is. So imagine that Jesus is leaving Jerusalem where he's made some major waves and made quite an impression. He's starting to travel down and north, but news travels faster than he does and goes all the way past Cana out to Capernaum and he hears the news and he says to himself, I have to get there. Like I, I have to go. If there's even a remote chance I get to encounter this man, I have to go. I have to seek out Jesus. I have to see uh, if I can meet with him. And so he makes this hike all the way up. And, uh, it can, and, and there's this contrast in the text between him and the others. Remember, Nicodemus is near the temple, and he, he doesn't really have to go anywhere. Like Jesus basically comes to him, and he just strolls down the hill and gets to talk with Jesus. But he walks away confused. Like, dude, I don't get that guy. I don't know what he's talking about. Then, the next story, you have the Samaritan woman who's sort of a chance encounter, didn't expect to meet this person, but she walks away with a greater amount of confidence, and she says, I think I've found him. I think I've found the Messiah, but I wasn't looking for him. And now he's out on the fringes, and this Roman centurion, he is hungry. There is no chance encounter here. He is seeking Jesus with everything that he has. He says, I am hungry, I am thirsty, I am in need. I will hike 20 miles uphill if I even have a chance of being able to encounter this man. And when he finally sees Jesus, the text says that he went to Jesus and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And then you get a Jesus' reply. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. 
which is Jesus for no. No. I'm really tired of you guys asking for signs and wonders as a prerequisite to faith. I'm not into it. I'm not going to do that. And, and this is the part of the story that amazes me the most. The centurion, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't try and exercise any of his authority as an official, as the oppressor. Uh, he, he doesn't hang his head and walk away. Instead, he steps forward. Imagine that. He hears no and he steps forward. He says, no, I imagine him saying this with tears in his eyes. He says, Jesus, if you don't come down, my son is going to die. Like, please, please would you make this trek? Would you do this for me? And all of a sudden, Jesus changes his tune. And, and he says, go, your son will live. Which is a crazy request. Essentially, he's saying, okay, you, you want your son to be healed? Here's what I will ask of you. Walk away. I'm not going with you. I want you to turn and walk away and start the 20-mile journey back home and trust that as you walk away from me, I will heal your son. Now, that is an act of faith. And it says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. So this is the centurion, the oppressor, exercising tremendous faith in Jesus. By faith, he leaves. By faith, he walks away, trusting that Jesus will do the miracle. And it says that that very hour, 20 miles away, back in Capernaum, his son was suddenly healed. So we go from Nicodemus, sort of Jew among Jews, who walks away confused, to the Samaritan woman who, who says, with a higher degree of confidence, I think this is it. I think I've found the Messiah, and I'm willing to go and tell people about him. Uh, to now, this outsider, this Gentile, like if the Samaritans are subhuman in the eyes of, of the Jewish people, you have to imagine the Gentiles at a totally different level. Like there, there were Jewish scholars and rabbis who would say, no, they're literally like dogs. They are not human, they have no value. And yet, this is the man who demonstrates tremendous faith as he comes to Jesus. In fact, in one of the other accounts, who I believe is referencing the same centurion, Jesus says, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And it's true. Up to this point, he has not seen anyone exercise this amount of faith. But this is not the way the story is supposed to go. This is not how things are supposed to unfold. If you're a Jewish person and you're reading the scriptures, this is all backwards and upside down. The people who are supposed to have faith do not have faith. People who are supposed to recognize him don't recognize him. And the further out he goes, the better response he receives. Nothing is unfolding in the way that we would anticipate. But as you continue to read the gospel accounts, what you'll see is that most of the miracles that Jesus performs are out in Galilee. 
they're out on the fringes with this mixed bag of people who are counterintuitively placing a ton of faith in him. Thousands of people are healed out there compared to very few in Jerusalem and in the center of power. The people who are supposed to be following with faith are not. And those who are supposed to be spiritually blind and in theory want nothing to do with God are actually the one ones replying in faith. And, and that creates this environment and where thousands of people are healed as the kingdom of God breaks out among them. In fact, it says uh, of Jesus' own hometown, it says, quote, he could not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith, which is a really interesting statement. So you've got the people on the margins whose society thinks nothing of, and they, they are coming in faith, and they're seeing all sorts of miracles and the multiplying of bread and people physically healed of all sorts of ailments. And back in Jerusalem, not a lot. In fact, in the instance we'll look at next week, someone is healed in Jerusalem, but it's one person, and it's to send a prophetic message to the leaders. Like what Jesus is doing and is able to do in his hometown and in Jerusalem is very different based on the heart posture with which people are coming to him. And so as the reader of these stories, uh, followers of Jesus interpreting this, saying, Jesus, who are you? What are you like? What did you do then? What do you want to do now? Honestly, some of these stories can leave, can leave me a bit confused. I'm like, okay, Jesus, you heal people. Like you do. But when and where and how kind of looks different every time. And it's not always the people you would expect, and it doesn't always happen in the places you would expect. And generally speaking, in places of greater faith, there's more healing, but that's not all that's at play there. And there are people who come to him, actually hundreds or even thousands that begin to gather in faith, and he says, hey, I'm all done here. So, so faith isn't the only factor, but, but it often helps. And, and so we're kind of just left at the end of a story like this saying, okay, well, how do we work this out? Like, how, what does this actually mean for us? How do I integrate this into my own life? Uh, where does this leave us thousands of years later uh, following Jesus on the other side of the world? Uh, how do I integrate this into my own life? Does Jesus still heal today? Uh, and if so, what does that look like? Under what circumstances? What role does faith play in us experiencing physical healing or not experiencing healing? Uh, what happens when we come in faith and pray for somebody and they're not healed? Like, what, do, what do we do with that? So, so as we, this week and next Sunday, there's another passage on healing. Uh, as we move through this section of sort of signs and wonders and physical healing in the Gospel of John, I think these are really important questions for us to sort of wrestle with, integrate, uh, work out in our own lives. And so what I want to do this morning, instead of trying to give really easy answers and saying, yeah, this is, this is the black and white of it and let's just worship, I actually want us to wrestle a little bit with some of these questions and try and integrate this into our lives 
So I've invited a panel of people uh, to join me up here and chat a little bit about what it looks like to walk this out. Uh, so if you're on that panel, why don't you go ahead and jump up here and uh, we'll have a discussion. And the discussion this morning is uh, gonna be really simple. Uh, it's just revolving around one prompt and the prompt is this, tell us about your experience uh, with physical healing in your journey of discipleship. Like the good, the bad, the ugly, the exciting, the difficult, what does this look like for us to uh, try and integrate this into our lives? So um, Coulter, if you wanna hand that mic to your sister who is up here, uh, Sarah, maybe we'll start with you and then kind of work our way down this way. So you, Jesus, discipleship, physical healing. Go. Well, I'm Sarah Starkey, for those that don't uh, know me. I'm just going to share about um, April 5th was the day, uh, 2017, uh, when the Lord physically healed me. Um, and going back, um, I, you know, growing up, I was raised by these two beautiful people right here. Um, and as you know, they're people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And I grew up in a home that knew knew Jesus. I knew Jesus from a young age, and my parents were always full of the Holy Spirit and integrated that into our lives. And so I knew about healing. Um, I read about it in the Bible and knew that the Lord healed people in the Bible. Um, and I had heard stories about present day God, you know, healing people in the world, healing people of cancer, healing people of broken bones, healing people of um, big things that they had prayed for. And so that was kind of my background. I knew about healing. Um, and when I was in college, um, I had had started having like a lot of GI issues, skin issues, um, things that I just was like, oh, this is weird. Maybe it's just because I'm in Tennessee and everything's fried and it's weird and it's different. But um, I went, came back home my senior year of college and finally got like an allergy panel um, done and um, came back with like 20 allergies that I had to different foods. Um, not all severe, none anaphylactic, nothing, you know, crazy, but things that were definitely related to all of those gut issues, GI issues, skin issues that I was having. Um, the worst being wheat, rice, and garlic. So you can think about those three things. Lots of foods have all three of those in them. Um, so after college, after I was done playing volleyball and, you know, was just on my own with nutrition and eating and stuff, I just sort of cut all those things out um, and felt better, a lot better. And so I was like, great, this is, this is, the, this is the time. I'm feeling awesome. Um, but anytime I would go out to eat or eat at people's houses, I would come back and I would have those same issues because, you know, you go to a restaurant, they say it's gluten-free or they say, oh, no, we don't cook with garlic which, you know, is hard to know. And so I would come back still feeling sick. It would happen. And when you avoid things for a long time, the reaction tends to get worse. So like two years after college, anytime I would eat garlic, wheat, rice, mad, like my stomach, bad, bad times, not great. Um, but I never really thought about asking the Lord to heal me just because I was like, oh, these are food allergies. Like people have food allergies. That's not it's not cancer, it's not a broken bone, it's not, you know, resurrect me from the dead, that kind of thing. I can deal with this, I can avoid these things. 
Um, and I didn't really know how much, like it took a toll on me physically, obviously, but mentally as well. Like I didn't really want to go out to eat. I didn't really want to go to people's houses to eat. I always brought my own food everywhere, which is just weird. You know, you don't want to do that because you want, you want to receive what people are giving you and you want to spend time with people. And so it took a toll on me mentally as well. And when I felt led to go to the Philippines with my dad and brother, I started thinking about it and just thinking like, oh my gosh, okay, the staple in Philippines is rice. What am I like? I'm not, this is going to be terrible. I got to bring my own food and I can't do that because that's terrible. And then I also thought like these people who have nothing are going to give me a meal wanting me to eat it. And then I'm going to feel terrible if I have to say no. So I prayed that the Lord would give me like a missionary palate. I had heard about people going on mission trips, having no issues, never getting sick, eating whatever and being fine. And so that's what I started to pray for. And I still felt like I was supposed to go on this trip to the Philippines. So we went um, and we were at like a rural church camp um, out in the jungle. Rural is a really good word for it. <laughs> All the very rudimentary. So bathroom situation, not good. Filipinos do not believe in toilet paper. Also, okay, God, I'm gonna have to really believe in faith here that I'm gonna be fine. And so, I ate everything and I ate, you know, full meals of rice and doused in sauce and I was doing totally fine, no issues. And I just really believed that the Lord was giving me this missionary palette that I was just like, you know, receiving everything and being free. And I was really excited about it. Um, but then I didn't really think about it anymore because we were in this church camp and Filipino people are just so full of joy and life and we were seeing people come to Christ and we saw miracles and led a volleyball camp and a basketball camp. And so I just, you know, forgot. I forgot about this thing that I was so worried about. Um, and so on the last day, um, when we were in our little condo, just me and my dad and my brother, just in this little, little condo apartment room, my dad was like, oh my gosh, you haven't had any problems. And I said, yeah, I know. I just, I feel like I've gotten this missionary palette and it's going to be great. And I'll just go back home and I'll just keep you know, doing my thing and praise the Lord and rice is great. And my dad was like, I think we should pray over you just right now. And I think one big thing that struck me there was it was just me and my dad and my brother. It didn't happen at the church camp when people were receiving Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. It just happened when we just decided, okay, let's just have faith that this is going to happen for me. And so Coulter and my dad laid hands on me, prayed over me in the Spirit, I felt the Holy Spirit, obviously, you know, my, my dad full of the Holy Spirit, and so is my brother, and so I just felt the Spirit present, and I was like, I think the Lord just healed me um, for good, not just missionary palate. Like, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to be healed, and I'm going to be living in this freedom. And so we get on this flight, 14-hour flight, and I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be full of faith here. And so I ate the full Korean rice bowl on a 14-hour flight, so step of faith for me. Um, and I was totally fine. And I was like, okay, well, we were still in Korea, so we weren't really in the United States, so was that still the missionary palette, or did you really heal me, Lord? So I went home and um, was, was, you know, with my friends, good friends, Ben and Tyler, and they just said, okay, let's, let's go buy some garlic bread and have some garlic bread. And I'm like, instant fear, just like, oh my gosh, I haven't had this in so long and ate it, was totally fine, and just was tears in my eyes about the just like the joy of the Lord, um, that he actually healed me. 
um, that I had had the faith to eat the garlic bread, and I just felt so free in that moment. Also, garlic bread is amazing, so I hadn't eaten in a long time, and so it was also the joy of the bread. Um, but uh, almost four years now, I have not had a single issue. No skin issues, no gut issues. The Lord totally and completely healed me of the allergies that I had. Um, and I, um, yeah, I just think that God was so kind in the timing that he did it too. Two weeks after that, I moved to Seattle um, with a whole new community, a whole new church, whole new missional community during the week where we would eat a meal every week started dating this really cool guy named Ian, um, who I'm now married to. Um, and I never had to worry about where he was gonna take me out to dinner or um, about what his mom would cook for me when we came home. Just, I was so free in it. And I think I still to this day just forget about how much of a hold it had over my life um, until I really believed that I was healed. Um, and so I know there's a lot of people here at this church that do have allergies. Um, food allergies specifically, and gut issues. Um, I just really believe that the Lord wants to heal those people. Um, so if you have the faith, which I know that people in this room have faith, um, I would encourage you to come for prayer, um, be prayed over in the spirit, and I just really feel like the Lord wants to heal people um, of those issues today. But God is good, and he is kind, um, and he does heal. And that's my story. Wow. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Sarah. Uh, Battertons, what, what's your perspective on kind of physical healing in the life of discipleship? Yeah, I've had some time to kind of think about this. Um, you know, for me, praying for healing is, is a real simple process. Um, I pray for people because Jesus taught us to pray for people. Um, you know, as Matt has shared this morning, some of the first things that he did was to heal people physically. And um, it's interesting to me that in Luke chapter 4, the first when he first started his ministry, he goes into you know the synagogue in his hometown. He pulls out the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he reads that passage. And the passage is all about healing. It's all about healing physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's about setting captives free. And we're captive to a lot of things. We're not just captive to emotional things. We're captive to physical things, too. And so he starts that. Um, and then in uh, a little bit later on in John, which we'll get to in a few weeks or months now, um, he says, I think it's in uh, John 14, 15, or John 14, 13, he basically says uh, to pray in his name. Um, it gives us, that's from Jesus' word, to pray in his name to pray for people in his name. Paul then goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, that we're to pray in the Spirit on all occasions, praying for people in all situations. And I think that includes healing. I think that praying for people's needs, whatever their physical, emotional, spiritual needs are. That, so, so we have Jesus telling us to pray. We have Paul telling us to pray. James says in James chapter 5 that we're, you know, is any of you sick? Go for prayer. Get prayer. And so I think we have a scriptural reason to do that. Um, it, it's biblically based. It's also experientially based for me because, you know, as Sarah just shared, and I have seen numerous times around the world, when we pray in faith, when someone comes in faith and says, I would like to pray for healing, I would like to pray for healing, it could be a physical thing, it could be an emotional thing, 
um, we're partnering with God at that moment. We're partnering with the work that the Holy Spirit has already begun because there's a reason why that person has been had something stirring within their heart to say, I, 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 I have the faith to go for healing right now. I have the faith to, to ask for healing. There's a vulnerability in that. It's like the words, I, I loved the words of that second song that we were singing. You know, when we, when we go with a heart that is abandoned to God, when we're vulnerable before God, when we're laying ourselves out there and saying, I want to be healed, then I, I believe that we're partnering. If we're the people praying for them, we're partnering with the work that the Holy Spirit is already doing. So it's not, it's not like I'm anybody special. I'm just partnering, like in the Philippines, with what Sarah was sharing and what Sarah was experiencing and partnering with the work that the Holy Spirit was doing and saying, hey, let's ask for more. Because God is a God of abundance. He is a God of of fullness. He, he, that is why he came. He came to give us that full life. And oftentimes that includes healing of physical or emotional things. Um, so I, I pray in Jesus' name. I ask for the healing power of the Holy Spirit. Um, if there's a specific area or, or a need that they share, the person that's coming forward and they share, I'll ask for that. Um, I'll often just, as they come, I'll just uh, pause and acknowledge the work that, you know, Lord, I just acknowledge that you're at work here. You're at work at this person's heart. Um, you, you want to do something good in their life right now. Um, and then, you know, practically a hand on the shoulder um, and then a pause to listen if the Lord would share something with me. It might be a word. It might be a picture. It might be a scripture. It might be something pertinent to them. It might not be. It's usually an encouragement. And if we share an encouraging word with someone, whether it's super meaningful to them at the moment or not, it's still an encouragement. And then just asking for physical healing or whatever the healing is. Lord, I, I pray that you would heal my brother, my sister in Jesus' name. Um, I have seen, um, you know, Matt talked about new, new frontiers and regions beyond. Terry Virgo, I've seen Terry Virgo pray. He's got a, I believe he's got a little special anointing for praying for people with back issues and and uh, leg issues, and I've seen him pray in faith, and he'll just speak directly to, you know, he'll say, he will say, Lord, uh, back, straighten. I mean, just with faith, he's asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. It's always God who does the healing. It's never me. It's never Terry. It's never anyone who's praying. We're always partnering with God and the Holy Spirit to see God continue or to see God bring healing and wholeness to that person. And um, I've, seen, I've seen people healed through prayer. I've seen physical healing. I've seen a lot of emotional healing. And uh, I have been healed. And so I just would encourage uh, people to be open to asking for prayer. Um, Jenny, you have some things to share? Um, <clears throat> just a couple of things. Um, I, just, I do believe um, that God wants to heal and restore and redeem his people on an ongoing basis. He loves us and he desires to come in and do those things. And he calls us to um, come alongside and, and partner and pray for one another. And anyone who's a follower of Jesus has the spirit and can pray for another person for healing. And um, I was thinking this morning about, um, you know, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. I was thinking about how he's already at work 
in this place and in our hearts, um, in the places that need healing. And I think sometimes um, emotional things, it could be a broken relationship or anxiety or fear, sometimes lead to actual physical ailments. And God wants to heal those things. And sometimes it's a process. Sometimes it's miraculous, like Sarah, and, and she's at once free. But I've seen that sometimes God um, heals, and it's a process. And we have to continue to keep coming back to him, asking him to heal those things, and asking him to um, do this process of physical healing. And sometimes it isn't until we're in glory. It isn't until we meet him face to face that we're completely healed. But we still, because he asked us to, and he walked and told his disciples, heal in my name, ask for healing in my name. He wants us as his disciples to ask for healing in his name. Um, I just want to start off with uh, a scripture. It's Romans 5, 3 through 5. It says, but we also rejoice in our affliction because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Um, just kind of give a backstory for us. Uh, 2010, um, we as a family really felt called to move to Spokane to help with a church plant. And it was in 2013 when we finally made the move. Um, we sold our dream home um, in Post Falls and moved to Spokane. The move cost our family a lot, but we trusted God. We trusted uh, with his call on our life. Um, there are a lot of great things that happened the first three years. Um, just a lot of really cool stuff that were going on. And then in uh, the summer of 2015, uh, Jennifer, my wife, started feeling uh, like something was off. Um, and through a process, her doctor decided in September of 2015 to put her on a parasitic med because um, she felt it was parasites that were causing the issue. And unfortunately, that uh, medicine just caused her a massive spiral. And within two to three months, we'd spent multiple we had multiple visits to the ER because my wife was in so much pain. Um, we'd seen multiple specialists, um, and what they finally diagnosed her with at that point was interstitial cystitis, which is a bladder disease. Um, and it's pretty painful, and it primarily affects women, but they, they used to call it the crazy lady syndrome because the pain was so intense it would put many women into psychiatric facilities. Um, We've since then had an additional diagnosis of Lyme's disease, um, and that seems to be one of the main driving things of everything that's going on with her. But as we started to come out of Jen's health crisis in the spring of 2016, um, unfortunately our son had an accident at a water park and knocked out three of his teeth. Um, and what we didn't know at the time was that would spiral. Uh, he had issues with migraines. He would have like two or three a year. Um, and for the next three years, he ended up getting about 90 a year. Um, so it just escalated, which in high school, that makes it a little bit challenging to miss that much school. 
Um, and at the same time as John was going through his issues, our youngest, Hannah, was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and it was a battle of three or four years to get her disease under control. And there was always that stress point of her losing her eyesight because of how it was attacking her. Um, for us, the hardship and the illnesses just hasn't been about the sicknesses. But really, for me, it's the unfulfilled expectations um, or unfulfilled dreams. Um, when Jen got sick, uh, it took me out of leadership in the church. It took time away from the other leaders in our church. It took time from, um, from a lot of different aspects. And eventually, I think a lot of that took its toll on the church, and the church fell apart. There were two stories during this time that, uh, Bible stories that really impacted me and God kept bringing me back to again and again. And one was Ruth. Um, and it's kind of goes along with Jamie was saying, cause as Christians, we like those big moment things where you see somebody go up in a wheelchair, get prayed for, and then they stand up and walk away and we're like, wow, that's amazing. But I think a lot of times what we miss is those incremental moments of God's sovereignty that when we look back on our life, when we look back, we can see his hand kind of guiding us through every step. Even though those steps may not be fun, we can see his, his guiding hand. And that's the story of Ruth. Because, And just to summarize it real quick, uh, Naomi had left her home country with her family, and her husband and her two sons end up dying. And all she's left with are two daughter-in-laws. And she ends up telling her daughters-in-laws, why don't you just go home back to your home country? And one of them, Naomi, or Ruth, sorry. One of them, Ruth says, no, my people are your people. Your people are my people. I want to go with you. And as you look at the story and you look at how things happen, you know, it just so happens that when they go back to their home country, it's during a time where Mosaic Law told them that the, any farmers or any of the, the landkeepers, they weren't allowed to go back on their own property if they missed an area. And so people, the poor, could go through that land and they could get food. It just so happened that the farm that Ruth ended up going to was a man named Boaz, who was a family member. And it just so happened that the man that, that Boaz ends up being a kinsman redeemer or a family member who Naomi can rightly marry. And it just so happens that Boaz ends up falling in love with her. And so you see these little threads of God just weaving it through. Like you look at the beginning and the end of the story, and it's miraculous. Jen isn't healed yet. Um, my son is doing better with migraines. My daughter is doing better with, with JRA. But they haven't been healed yet. But what, what we can do is we can look back and we can see God's provision uh, throughout the whole process. I have the friends that have stood with us, the myriads of prayers and countries and different things that have prayed for my wife over the years. We've had probably over $100,000 worth of doctor's bills in the last five years. And with that, we have no debt whatsoever when it comes to that. God has constantly been providing for us. And River's Edge has been a part of that. I know people within this church have been a blessing to us. And then there was the story of Job, and I won't get too deep into it. But the one thing that God kept bringing back to me was just because you're suffering, because if you look at Job's life, uh, the only reason he was suffering is because God allowed Satan to attack him. 
And a lot of the times we equate our circumstances, we equate the trials, whether they're good blessings or they're trials, as being God approving or disapproving of where we're at in life. And we can use that as an example. So even though God has called us to Spokane, I am faithful, I am trusting that he's going to do what he called us to do, regardless of our circumstances. And so sometimes we can get into that little mindset of, if God is blessing us, then we must be in the right place. If we're having struggles and we're having trials, then we must be in the wrong place. And those two don't always equate to the same thing. And like Job, I've spent many days on my knees. I've been angry at God. Um, I've questioned him, asking for answers and wondering why he's called us to Spokane. And then I look back at all he's done, and the only thing I can do is worship him. I don't know why Jen hasn't been healed yet. Um, but what I won't do is stop asking. Uh, I won't stop praying because we know that, it goes back to that scripture, that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope will not disappoint us. Oh, thanks so much for sharing, Donald. And you'll hear, hopefully, in his story and the story of their family, why I asked him to be up here. Uh, it'd be really easy to say, here's the three coolest healing stories that have ever happened at River's Edge. Get out there, you know. But in, you can go to some of the most spirit-filled uh, churches in the world where, let, let's say, you could find the churches in the world where more physical healing occurs than any other place. And the leaders of those churches will say, we still have chronically ill people here who have been prayed over once, twice, 10, 15, 20 times we've prayed. And it happened to Paul. I prayed over and over again for this thing to be removed. God never removed it. And so, uh, and probably my favorite example of all, and then we'll, we'll end here in a moment with some worship and prayer. But my favorite example of this is a man named John Wimber who some of you may know is the leader of the Vineyard Church Movement, which was very charismatic, very spirit-filled, very into the gifts of the spirit. Uh, and he particularly, I would say, had like an anointing for physical healing. He would do physical healing conferences, and you can watch on video as people are like physically healed of blind people began to see. People stood up out of their wheelchairs. Thousands of people were healed by this man. But what most people don't know is that he had a heart condition that never got healed. So just like let that sink in for a second. He had, he had more faith than just about anybody else on the planet for the ability of God to physically heal people. He had faith that God would, could, could and perhaps would physically heal him. I cannot tell you how many times he or his team would have prayed over that and he was never healed. And in fact, if I understand the story right, I think he eventually died of that condition or younger than he should have died. So, so just think about the, like the, the craziness. Like this is, it's not a straightforward thing. It's not a black and white thing. You can't, like we can't just say, hey, if you had faith, you'd be physically healed. Donald and Jen have faith. John Wimber had faith. Like a lot of us in this room have faith. But what do you do with that? So as disciples, we have to sit in this place of, saying, wow, this happens, and God, you're actually calling us to be a people who pray for that, and who pray for that in faith, and who see it happen, but we also have to be okay 
moving forward in solidarity when it doesn't happen, if that makes sense. And so the, the panel and the perspectives you're hearing, it's intentionally a little bit messy, right? Like you might walk away and be like, well, what do I do now? I'm like just as confused as I was before the panel. Uh, and I think that's okay. But it comes down to saying, Jesus, you're alive. You heal. You ask us to pray for this. You actually told a parable where the whole point of the parable is to keep on praying and not give up. So if you're here and you're chronically, chronically ill, we'd love to pray for you again. Uh, but we, we have to take that forward and operate in in the messiness with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit and with faith uh, in the mix. So, Jenny, could you pray for us? And then uh, after Jenny prays, that we're going to have a, kind of a shorter time of worship than usual because I really wanted us to take our time here. But we're going to worship for a couple songs and take communion together. As we're doing that, um, I've asked these guys to just kind of be our prayer team today and be over on the side where the snacks are. So if you're here and you want prayer for physical healing, for emotional healing, for whatever it is that you're up against this morning, these guys would love to pray for you uh, and invite the Holy Spirit into the mix and, and see what happens. So Jenny, why don't you pray for us and then we'll spend some time in prayer and worship. Yet Jesus, we just acknowledge uh, that you're here. And we acknowledge that you're at work in the hearts of your people in this place, God. And so would you stir in us a desire for you to work and continue working and be healed, Lord. Would you break down every barrier and wall that might cause us to not want to come for prayer, Lord? And Lord, we just thank you that it's you that does the healing. And we just say, Holy Spirit, come. Have your way in this place. In Jesus' name.